Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to tonight's edition of Students for Better Future Radio. I'm your host, Doreen Finkel, with Ruben Torres. And folks, um, we have another night ahead of us. Um, We're going to be talking about Ayn Rand um, coming up. And um, we have the Mets playing tonight, and uh, the Mets versus the Dodgers. And then we also have a a freak show, right, Ruben? The freak show Um, starts right now. But not in our, not us. It starts at 9 o'clock Eastern time. Okay, the freak show, um, and that, he means the the Democratic debate, right? Yes. (laughs) Um, Okay, so we do, we will be looking at those things tonight, um, you know, and um, and in just a minute we're going to be joined by our guest, Dr. Andrew Bernstein, um, is going to be talking about the Ayn Rand Institute and telling us everything that she kind of knew um, and foresaw. Um, and But before we get to that, I do want to mention to please go to the 501c3 nonprofit, studentsforbetterfuture.com, and if you can make a donation, that would be great. Um, that's studentsforbetterfuture.com. Um, that keeps this little radio program going. Um, and uh, I believe our guest is on right now. Dr. Bernstein, is that you? That's me, Doreen. How you doing? Okay. Welcome to the show, Doc. Good to be here. How are you, um, Andrew? I'm, I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah. Yes. Folks, Dr. Bernstein is a uh, professor of philo- uh, philosophy, correct? That's correct, Doreen. Uh and uh, a couple of universities, well, we know him right here from William Patterson University, um, and he has actually done a lot of research on Ayn Rand, right? Yep. Yes, since I was like 16 years old. Oh, okay. Um, you know what I want to ask you first um, is, is this, uh, if you can give us a little background about her. And, and why she's really important. That would be great. Sure. Um, well, well. first of all, uh, Ayn Rand was born in Russia in 1905. Her real, her real name was Alyssa Rosenbaum. So she, she grew up under the Tsar, was educated under the Soviets. You might, when the communists came to power, she uh, uh, graduated from the University of Leningrad. Um, escaped to the United States in 1926 when she was 21 years old. She knew from the time she was very young. Uh, she took the name Ayn Rand uh, because Ayn Rand never lacked for confidence. She was convinced she she would uh, achieve literary fame, and uh, her family was left behind in the Soviet Union when Stalin was in power. And and if um, she, she achieved fame as a defector and as a defender of individualism, her family they were, probably would have been killed. So she she used Ayn Rand as a as a pen name, um, and of course. Uh, wrote some of the greatest novels in world literature, I think, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged in particular, but also Anthem. I think those are three brilliant novels, and and of course, you know, with great stories glorifying the human potential for heroism. And philosophically, Rand was a staunch believer in reason, not faith or feelings as as the means for human beings to gain knowledge, uh, believer in egoism and the, the right of somebody to their own life and the pursuit of their own happiness and that they not you know they shouldn't sacrifice themselves to others. Belief in individualism and individual rights that uh, you know, which follows logically from egoism that an individual has the in, inalienable right to your own life. Uh, your life belongs to you, not to the state. Uh, not to God, not to not to the family, but to you. And of course, uh, she 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 developed a whole philosophical system called objectivism in support of these principles. And and I think is the greatest 
novelist in world literature. So I think um, the tremendous relevance she has for today is one as the great novelist to, to read these great stories she wrote, uh, especially to see the the human capacity for, for heroism that she presents. I think Howard Rourke in The Fountainhead, uh, to me, is, he's, he's my all-time favorite hero. I mean, I think he's the greatest hero in world literature. And then also as a philosopher, in support of reason, uh, egoism, individual rights, capitalism, the limited constitutional government. I think as a philosopher, Ayn Rand has tremendous relevance uh, today, especially. I think I think it, if, if anything's going to stop the, the path to collectivism and socialism in this country, it's Ayn Rand's books and philosophy. So that's that's how relevant I think she is to, to contemporary American culture and politics. Well, I have a question for you, Doctor. Uh, yeah. You you just mentioned you just brought my you just what you just said brought me to what I was going to ask you in regards to socialism uh, and capitalism. Capitalism in the United States for such a long time has been such a uh, a primary way of living and a primary way of of becoming more productive and be and be uh, you know enriching yourself. Uh, but over the past Eight years since we've had this administration, people's mentality, or a great number of them, have basically focused more on, well, we want to, what's wrong with being, what's wrong with socialism? It's like socialism, when I was growing up, was a dirty word. Communism, a dirty word. Now today, it's more acceptable. Why do you see, why do you think that that change of mind, that frame of mind in most Americans has has appear to have changed. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think it's, it's no secret that the American educational system has been controlled for a long time by people who are basically semi-socialists, right? I mean, the, the teachers' union in the government schools, the humanities programs in our universities, the teachers' colleges, the philosophy dominating there is, is some uh, is some offshoot, some diluted version of Marxism. You know, which is basically the idea that 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 the government uh, needs needs to take care of us. We need a paternalistic state. Uh, our lives belong to the state. We, we're not we're, we're not capable of of being self reliant. We need we need the group, you know, and, and the state to take care of us. And I think I think that basically the Marxists have controlled the American educational system for the better part of a hundred years now, and they've done their work. And they have one. I think the propaganda they push in the content that's taught in our schools at all levels, from K through graduate school, the content is basically uh, socialist in one version or another. You know, capitalism is is evil. It exploits. The poor uh, today, the, you know, it, 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 uh, it degrades the environment. Um, uh, the, the, the capitalist countries are imperialistic, and they, you know, they they exploit the, the third world. Uh, you know, the v- various forms of, of leftist ideology, the environmentalism, of course, you know, again pushed as a backdoor into socialism that. Uh, free enterprise and industry, you know, pollute pollute the the world, degrade the environment. We need the government to to control it. So, I mean, in the content of what they've taught for many years now, it's basically pushed a leftist agenda. But also in their methodology, the, the way they've dumbed down the educational system so that the, the they 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 don't teach the students not only the, the the truth about the history of capitalism or the history of the United States, but they don't teach any kind of thinking method. So, I mean, I, I teach right. philosophy to, to these poor kids, you know, in college, they not only, and this thing university level, they not only don't know any history or literature, they know nothing in the humanities, so it's very difficult to teach them the abstract concepts of philosophy, but they don't know how to think. They don't, they, they don't know objectivity from subjectivity. They can't distinguish their own feelings from factual evidence in support of a, uh, of, of a conclusion. And so they don't have the mechanism, the, the intellectual mechanism, <laughs> by, by means of which to challenge the, the ideology and the propaganda being spouted at them by their professors. So I think that's the main reason. And I don't think we're going to win in this country, no matter how many political victories we, we win, and we do need to win at the political level. But we'll never win the battle un, until we, uh, we can privatize the educational system 
and uh, and win at win at, in the educational system, and and that is going to be an enormous undertaking because the leftists have controlled the American educational system for at least 100 years. So so we have our uh, we have our work cut out for us, but that, that's not to say it's undoable. Well, Doc, do you think that that the kids born today they don't know what it, any better or what it was like? Could that be it too? Like if you're um, born into socialism, you may not know what capitalism was like. For yeah, example. that's a yeah, that's a good point. And and you know, Doreen, you'll remember when uh, when I spoke at Montclair State a couple of years ago on the, on the the truth about communism. My buddy Arshak Benley and you know accompanied me and spoke and you know he grew up in Bulgaria under the communists so when he when he sees the and he, he you know he escaped to the United States to escape from, from from the communists and when he sees the United States moving towards socialism of course it makes his blood boil because he knows he knows the end of that road you know the, that socialism which is well named by the way because it means that your life has been socialized you know your life now belongs to society your life belongs to the state it doesn't belong to you uh he knows that the the road to that the, the end the end result of that is totalitarianism so i think you're right the kids the kids uh and, and even the adults in the united states uh you know we we grew up taking for granted you know, we, uh, not not only the material prosperity of the capitalist system, but the principle of individual rights. It's just part of our heritage. You know, we we take it for granted, and um, and and, and that's too bad because it's been it's been very atypical in mankind's history, and it's very special. And and we need to uh, we definitely need to understand how special it is, and that we're losing it, and that we need to stand up and speak out in support of our rights, and to do so as vociferously and as loudly as possible. Well, I think I think additionally, in, in addition to what we're confronting now, we'll, we have another challenge, which is that the educational system from uh, kindergarten all the way to K twelve is now being exploited by Common Core, which is basically going to basically advance the agenda even more. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I I'm, I I don't have the stomach to even explore the uh you know the details about common core but i but i do know that it's simply a, another step forward in the leftist march towards a thought you know hegemony in the uh, in the american educational system both in terms of content and promoting their propaganda and in terms of non-method in in, in teaching the kids to emote to uh you know to go by their feelings be subjective and not not know how to think and i can see it in my logic classrooms you know, it's, it's so difficult for these poor kids at the college level to distinguish between what they may feel on a given subject, factual evidence is in, in support of a, of a conclusion. That they, they just they don't have a thinking method, and that's even more fundamental than the fact that they have a propaganda in regards to content. Right. Right. Well, uh, one of the things with Common Core um, is this: is that the objectives are set by um, not your local school board. Uh, they're, they're made by the Department of Education, and pretty much if you want to call it the, the government. And the, the issue with that is all of these standards for, let's say, uh, the 10th grade um, is the same throughout the country. And those people who are in the education department uh, whoever serves in there, they develop the standards for each grade. Um, but but the and and it's whatever they put in the curriculum, by the way. But um, the the issue with the standards being the same, um, for example, a kid from Patterson, New Jersey, uh, may, is in a different environment than somebody from Wayne, New Jersey. So who's to say that those standards? You know what I'm saying? Are, are right for each one. That's why. Mm-hmm. That's the problem with the Common Core. That's the big problem with Common Core, and um, you, you know, and and so, and, and even a lot of teachers don't like that. But um, and, and that's why you want to get it out of the system because the more local you have over your your education system, the more you can assess the problems. So that, that's the whole idea that's going on with the Common Core. 
Okay. Um, and I think for uh, Ruben, what did you call him? Uh, Obama Corps. I called it. I called it. I called it Obama Corps. Obama Corps. Obama Corps. Maybe we can call it Obama Ed. You know, just like we have Obamacare, maybe we have Obama Ed. But and now, and the more regulation you have over the school system. You know, it's like these laws are coming down. You're actually tying the teacher's hand because they have to teach to the objective, and it forces them um, to. You and you may only be teaching to the objective rather than this teaching period. That's the issue, and I know teachers. You know what they do uh, in Patterson? They used to do it all the time. They used to teach to the test, you know, rather than the concept behind it. Right. Go ahead, Ruben. I know you wanted to ask. Well, I I wanted to see if uh, Dr. Bernstein uh, it, it feels the same way that I feel in uh, in regards to that the media, academia, and the current administration they tend to it, it appears to me that they're working together on this agenda. I mean, I'm not trying to sound conspiratorial, but it, it appears that with this past seven years, the agenda, the socialist agenda, has advanced quite far. Yeah, well, I think that's, I think that's absolutely true, and we don't need to posit any type of conspiracy because there's something at work here that's vastly more powerful than a conspiracy, and that is a philosophy. The uh, the administration, the the media, the teachers' unions, the, the um, university education programs, they share a basic philosophy. And it comes, it's, it's the philosophy that dominates uh, modern Western culture. It comes from Germany. It's basically the philosophy of Kant, Hegel, and, and Marx. And it's, to put it simply, it's the idea that society is dominant over the individual um, in, in, in every way that, that we, our ideas, you know, that every, every society uh, has its basic concepts, its basic principles that it, through which it, it sees the world. An individual grows up in, in, in that society, sees the world the way that society sees. That's multiculturalism. Right? I mean, you see that we're dominated intellectually by society. Uh, that society trains us educationally to see the world the way we do. And since society is our master, we should certainly serve it, you know, politically. And we, we need socialism and 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 and. Uh, the individual's life belongs to the state, and it's a it's a shared philosophy, uh, and, and so the so the the common core. I, I again, what little I know about common core, I just see as uh, another step in the leftist educational agenda to push a socialist, anti-capitalist, uh, anti-individualist content, and to dumb down the system even further regarding thinking method, regarding methodology, so that the students basically accept what their superiors tell them, their teachers or, or, or the government, and that and they don't have an independent intellectual mechanism by means of which to challenge what the authorities tell them, whether the authorities are their, their professors or the or the government. So basically the the the, uh, the 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 philosophy here is to teach us to serve the state. It's exactly you know when Ayn Rand warned us about an anthem, you know, a, a brilliant little novel a novelette about it. Uh, a fascist and or communist future in which every individual's life belongs not only to the state, you know, across the world. I mean, that's, that's the philosophy. So, so you're right. Ruben, there's, maybe needs, there's no need for a conspiracy. I mean, there's so many right. people who share this philosophy. Where would they hold... I mean, the, the idea of a conspiracy is, involves, you know, a covert uh, covert activities. Well, where would they hold their covert, you know, meetings? What, in the Grand Canyon? There's like millions. There's millions of, of, of leftists in the world. It, 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 there's no, it wouldn't be possible to keep a conspiracy concealed. Millions of people. It's a shared philosophy. So it's much more powerful than any kind of conspiracy that would be. Right. Okay. Go, go ahead, Ruben. No, no, no I'm, I'm uh, Okay. All right, because... Um, because then, uh, and I want to also got, kind of go into um, uh, her philosophy on faith and force and um, what Anne Rand said about all that. If you can give us a little background. On faith and force? 
Yes. Well, I mean, Ayn Rand certainly thought that reason is is the means by which human beings gain knowledge and and and, and need to need to guide their lives. So, you know, by that, if she means observation based thinking. You know, you start with observation. You know, sense perception, sense experience of facts, and then you you think about. Logically, you think about the facts and you you know, arrive at conclusions or theories to explain the facts. Uh, so faith abrogates that right away. I, I mean, faith is if 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 I'm going to believe that Bernie Bush's speak or men live inside whales or virgins give birth, well, that's some super spirit of the universe, you know, uh, who is a spirit without any bodily means and created the entire universe from nothing. This abrogates the, the method by which human beings live. And I think Ayn Rand shows us brilliantly in Atlas Shrugged that reason is mankind's survival instrument. You know, that in, in order for us to grow food and cure diseases and build cities and, and learn logic and philosophy and the sciences and the arts and, and everything, we need to deploy our rational faculty. This is, this is the, that reason is to us the way birds are to a, uh, the way wings are to a bird. It's, uh, it's the ability to fly is what enables birds to survive in the world, and the ability to think rationally is what enables human beings to, to, uh, to, to survive and prosper in the world. So anything that undermines our rational faculty is inimical to human survival on, on this earth, and faith is one major, one major form of it. And uh, so uh, regarding thoughts, I mean, Ayn Rand you know, pointed out that rational human beings who go by facts, they have, a, uh, they have a court of appeal by which to arbitrate disputes if they're honest, and they're rational. They point to the facts, and they and they use, they use logic, and they provide evidence to support their conclusion, and they come to some kind of negotiated agreement. If we go by faith, there's no way to prove any of this. You know, one religion says X, other religion may say not X. One religion says you're an infidel, you know, and you're a non-believer, so you deserve to die. Another religion says, well, you're a heretic. You claim to believe believe in this faith, but you reject certain elements of the orthodoxy, so we'll burn you at the stake. Uh, there's no way to establish. You know, any of this, and I think like a perfect—I mean, the jihadists are a perfect example of this. But also, if you looked at the history of, uh, of Western society, I mean, Joan of Arc was a great example. I mean, she thought the voices she heard in her head came from God. The Inquisition said they came from the devil. Uh, how are you going to prove one way or the other? I mean, you can't. So uh, the Inquisition burned her at the stake. There's, there's no way to prove any of those claims, and so there's no way to negotiate. The, the inevitable disagreements that emerge amongst human beings or, or societies, and religion has been a force for uh, warfare, persecution, mass exterminations, going back to the ancient Hebrews. So, if not, if not further, so uh, a faith, uh, a faith-based epistemology that's a faith-based method of trying to gain knowledge leads inevitably to, to warfare, burning people at the stake, religious warfare, you know. The, Etc. Etc. It's it's any anything. I think a broader principle here for Rand is this: since reason is mankind's survival instrument, anything that undermines or abrogates reason is inimical to human survival on this earth. And faith is one major example of that, although it's not the only one. So, so yeah, the direct connection between faith and the initiation of force in, in Ayn Rand's philosophy. Right. I actually call that extremism and being too far to the right. Um, but that religious view, you have to more. Yes, well, well, because there's extremists in in everything. You know, there's the extremists in religion. You, you can believe that stuff, but you know, if you push it upon others and not let others have have an open mind, um, you, you know, that's where the problem comes into being. Is where you try to force that stuff on others, especially. Um, and then there's those who have been too far to the left. Um, and, you know, like, uh, for example, Adolf Hitler. Um, but well, I also want to ask you what, what was meant um, uh, by the Objectivist Academic Center? What's that? I found that on the website. Oh, the Objectivist Academic Center. You know, I haven't followed uh, this. I work. You, you know, uh, for, for the Ayn Rand Institute, I work for them part time as a as a lecturer. So, so they have so many activities that go on that I'm not, you know, I'm not following all of the activities that they're engaged in. But the objective is academic center, as, as I remember, it was you know to, was to provide intellectual training to promising young intellectuals, you know, people, you know, people who admire Ayn Rand, who want to study objectivism, who who are seeking to have a, a career. 
as professional intellectuals, whether it's a philosophy or history or, you know, or literature or, or various cognate fields. And so there's, there's a rigorous training in uh, history of philosophy, I believe, certainly in objectivism, in, in, in Ayn Rand's novels, in cultural applications of, of these ideas. So it's uh, just what the name indicates. It was a, a, as an academic center to, uh, to study objectivism and its application to you know, cultural issues in, in the world today. Um, go ahead, Ruben. Well, um, in regards to the, the current group of presidential candidates, I, based on your research and, and how you study Ayn Rand philosophy, capitalism, which candidate on the Republican ticket, on the Republican, uh, the Republican candidates? Do you feel or do you see that resembles and follows that philosophy? I I, I have I think one does, but it may not be agreeable by everyone um, or by anyone, um, and that would be Ted Cruz. Yeah, that's the name. That's the name that came to my mind, uh, and I, I have a lot of respect for Ted Cruz. I know you know he's read Ayn Rand. He's quoted her on the Senate floor. And I know he's a, he a, 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 admires Ayn Rand a great deal, and I get the impression. Ted Cruz is a highly intelligent, you know, individual. I get the impression listening to him, to him speak that he's extremely yeah. knowledgeable, you know, you very know, knowledgeable. And, and very knowledgeable, very very thoughtful. And I know, you know, you know, I've I've worked also for Fee, you know, the Foundation for Economic Education, which. Uh, again, an educational organization like the Ayn Rand Institute, but in this case, devoted to to teaching the principles of Austrian economics and you know, of, of, of free market. And I know that, uh, that some, of, some of the people at Fee told me, you know, Ted Cruz as a teenager, you know, t- t- took their seminars and he, he, he studied economics, you know, uh, basic Austrian theory, you know, the, the, the theory of free market economics at the Foundation for Economic Education. So he's basically, you know, an Ayn Rand-influenced, uh, classical liberal type, wanting to limit government, uh, support individual rights, so support free markets. So I, I, uh, I like Ted Cruz a lot, and then I also have a great deal of respect for Ben Carson. Um, although I disagree with both with both Ben Ben Carson and Ted Cruz, you know, on the, on their religiously driven political views on you know, on, on certain issues, but. Uh, I, you know, a lot of respect for Ben Carson, the way he loves America, the way he understands, in many cases, individual rights. Um, the, the, that he's that he's been a brilliant brain surgeon and pioneered uh, techniques in brain surgery for you know for, for uh, surgery, brain surgery on children. And of course, the way he came out of a, a poor family, a broken home in, in Detroit, where his mother was working two or three jobs. To support him, he's such a role model. I mean, I would say Ted, I would say Ben Carson is a hero, even if I disagree with him on various issues. So I'd be uh, very happy to see if either, either one of those guys became the Republican candidate, and and, and happy that both of them, uh, even though I disagree with them on, on certain issues, I, to me, I think that Ted Cruz and Ben Carson is as, as good as we're going to get in contemporary America, right? You know, right now. So, so I, I like I like both of them. Okay. Do you like anybody in the Democratic Party? <laughs> you know, I'm tempted. Speaking of that, and isn't there the show, the uh, 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 the debate going on tonight, Ruben? Oh yeah, it started at nine o'clock. Just, but you know, basically, it's not going to get any ratings anyway. We'll get more ratings than they will. <laughs> yes, we do. So. You know, in answer to your question, Dorian, I'm tempted to just kind of derisively dismiss. That. But let me take. Let me, let me you know work hard here to be serious. Uh, I think for a long, a long time now, as much as I disagree with the, a lot of the religiously driven political views in the Republican Party, they still the Republicans at their best still have a certain Americanism to them. There's still a respect, some respect for individual rights. You can hear it even on talk radio. Listen to Rush Limbaugh. You know, and they even talk about individual rights. And they have some, you know, Sean Hannity and Mark Levin, they even have some understanding of it. And I think Ted Cruz and Ben Carson, you know, have, they have a certain love for America at its best. 
like Ayn Rand said, America at its best is about individual rights. Whereas, unfortunately, the Democrats, I mean, I'm trying to think of the last time there was elements of Americanism, that is, of individualism and individual rights prominently displayed in the Democratic Party. I'm, I'm, I, I'm thinking off the top of my head to go back as, as far back as John Kennedy, who, for whatever uh, semi-socialist he was, he also recognized the harm as a communist and was, was as much of a Cold War year as Ronald Reagan, which the Democrats don't want to acknowledge anymore, and was, and was very willing to defend the country in a way that I don't think anybody in the Democratic Party is willing to defend the country any anymore. Uh, the Democrats for a long time now have just... If the, if the Republicans are a mixture of religion and Americanism, that is, a, of individual rights, uh, the Democrats for a while were a mixture of, of Marxist collectivism and some American elements, but Marxism has become much more and more prominent in the Democratic Party in recent decades, and Americanism or individual, individual rights has become less and less prominent to a point where it's practically disappeared now in the Obama administration. And, and I, you know, you have Bernie Sanders, you know, running for the Democratic nomination, which would be perfect. He's an overt socialist. Uh, and he should be that candidate uh, because he represents, it may well be that candidate because he represents the essence of the Democratic Party right now. So the uh, Democratic Party has become increasingly more collectivist, less individualist, less American, to the point where they're, they're practically non they're practically not American anymore. They're, they're, they're actually German. You know, there's, there's a German philosophy and, and socialists, which you know, comes from Contegel and Marx, who are both German philosophers. The, the Democrats say really German. German is more, more than Americans, where the, the Republicans at least have some American elements left in them. So, no, I can't think of anybody in the Democratic Party uh, you know, that, uh, that I would support, even remotely. They're, they're thoroughgoing collectivists by this time, and they're truly a Republican. Party. Hopefully they change, you know, in 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 the in the near future sooner rather than later. Although I don't, you know, the trend line for them has been growing increasingly collectivist and increasingly socialist for a hundred years now. So it take a revolution, you know, an earthquake in that party to to, to bring about any change. So now, how do we bring back our education to the center? What are some of the things we need to do? Bring it back to the center. This, I, I'm, I'm sorry, during the, the center of what? Yeah, bring it back to the, the center because right now it's it's far to the left and it's got this collectivism. You know, um, yeah. What what do we need to do to maybe we need to infiltrate the education system? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. Um, that's a. That's a huge undertaking. That's like clean. That's like an intellectual version of you know Hercules uh, cleaning the Augean stables in, in in Greek mythology. Uh, here, here's some of the steps I think that would need to be accomplished, and we're years away from this. But we but we need to intellectually start uh, pr- promoting this. And uh, w- w- one is we need to shut down. The, uh, the the teachers colleges the uh, the, the education departments in, in the universities that they're, they're uh, a, a center of of disseminating nothing but poison I think we need to stress that our future teachers at any level you know K through graduate school need to be experts in their subject and they should not be taking education courses the math teachers should be studying math the literature teachers should be studying literature the history teachers should be studying history they should be experts in their subject and then as they they near, near the end you, you know you give them a, a few courses from master teachers and teacher training and everything you can supervise their training but the, the but the education the education courses are uh there's little or nothing to teach there and and they they, 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 they they're worse than a waste of time. They're 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 centers of just disseminating leftist poison. So that's one thing that needs to happen. I think we need to privatize the educational system. I think we you know we we need to put an end. To, we need to abolish government schools the same way. And, and I'm an abolitionist. We need to abolish government schools in the same way that we abolished slavery in this country 150 years ago. Uh, the American people don't realize how superlative. Private education was in this country, you know, prior to the mid 19th century, when 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 there were no government schools, you know, and, and how literate the American population was. I, I mean, uh, for one example, the essays of the Federalists, you know, written by Madison, Hamilton, and Jay in support of the Constitution, which are very very sophisticated 
uh, political science were written largely as newspaper editorials for the for the common man. Can you imagine putting them in the New York Post today, uh, or in the New York Times? You know, uh, the private education in this country prior to the imposition of government schools in the mid 19th century was 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 outstanding. Most people don't know that, and we so we need to uh, we need to educate the public on that and, and lobby incessantly for privatization of the of the educational system, and. With, when, when that happens, you're going to see a diversification of all kinds of schools. Different kinds of schools will proliferate, some of which will actually teach, teach thinking method, will teach the truth about capitalism and, and, and American history. And you're going, to see, you're going to see those schools flourish. More and more parents send their kids to those schools because their kids will, those schools will, will teach phonics, for instance, to, uh, for, in reading rather than books, say, a whole language. They, those students will learn how to read, etc. You'll see those schools flourish on a, on a free market. Whereas today, of course, the, more, the worse the government schools are, the, the more money, the more money we give them, the more the more people are taxed to support the failing government schools, and then, of course. Uh, middle-class families, never mind poor families, taxed to finance the family government schools are unable to, afford, you know, they can't afford to pay twice for education. So they're, 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 they're something like 85 or 90 percent of, of the kids, in, you know, educated in this country get educated in the government schools. And so, you know, the leftist teaches you and <laughs> has all of these victims that are forced into, you know, that that, that are forced into. So those are two steps that I think. Uh, need to happen, but in order to get there, I, I think we need to promote objectivism and you know the philosophy of reason and, and individualism before those radical political steps could, would be would be viable in uh, you know in our in our society. Uh, go ahead, Ruben. Do you want to ask? Um, I, I think the, um, the the whole situation with the school system. Um, in regards to uh, having already a, a system set up to basically brainwash all these kids, again, is going to accelerate even more with the integration, more illegals coming to our country. Uh, that's going to create what I think the left is looking at as basically a new group of individuals to brainwash. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah. and the immigration issue is, is a fascinating issue because I know a lot of uh, conservatives conflate it with the welfare state, and they don't want you know people coming into the country and going on welfare. Uh, but I think there's a couple of points I want to make on that. One is I think independent of where we Stand, as my response to the conservatives on this issue, independent of where we stand on the issue of immigration, we need to phase out the welfare state. It's a disaster for everybody. It's a disaster for the productive people who are coerced to support it, and it's a worse disaster for the people who are seduced onto the dole. Remember Walter Williams' immortal phrase, you know, seduced by Washington's welfare pimps uh, onto the dole, because, I mean, here's what the welfare state does. I think... It, it places perverse financial incentives in, in, ser, in, in service of men's most irrational premises. Yeah, you know, and it's, it, for instance, one of, the, one of the horrible consequences of a massive welfare state directed at black Americans largely because blacks were, you know, disproportionately poor, you know, in the mid to late 20th century, uh, you know, is, is the, the way it has severely harmed the black family and, and the illegitimacy rates and the, the, the the children raised with, you know, without fathers in the home, which is harmful to the girls and just devastating to the boys. The welfare state needs to be phased out on pure humanitarian grounds. Uh, so, but anyhow, independent of that, uh, the, I think what we need to do is I think we need to have open immigration in this country. And uh, that, that's, that resolves, to a large degree, that resolves the problem of illegals because most people, given the choice, uh, it will come in through the front door and become citizens rather than uh, uh, rather than uh, you know you know be, be Ill illegal immigrants. Uh, you, we we need to d dismantle the welfare state. Although the, the welfare state is largely, a, I, I think the conservative fear is is is, is misguided anyhow. Because the welfare state is largely a problem with native-born Americans. Most immigrants come to this country at work. Uh, it's always been the, the case, and, and the labor force participation rates show. 
It's still the case. Immigrants, legal or illegal, have a much higher uh, uh, have a much higher ratio of labor force participation than the, than the native-born Americans. Uh, but nevertheless, I think uh, abolish the welfare state on purely humanitarian grounds. Open the borders, although we need to do background checks, obviously, to keep out criminals and jihad, especially jihadists. Uh, and then, you know, uh, respect the right of individuals to, to, to come live in a free country. Uh, and when welfare states abolish, and of course, people people are going to, are going to work, which immigrants come here overwhelmingly to do anyway. Wow, it's a very good discussion here. Um, folks, the call in number 646-915-8117. I know people are listening, um, don't, but don't be afraid to just step in and ask a question. Uh, and, and actually, um, Dr. Well, I think, Bernstein, I think people are intimidated by you, Doreen. They're afraid you might yell at them or, you know, <laughs> you're, a very daunting, you're a very daunting kind of personality. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, I, I want to ask you this: um, it, w- What is uh, the actual definition of uh, an objectivist or objectivism? Object- objectivism is uh, philosophical philosophic system created by Ayn Rand, upholding. And I'm just giving this off the top of my head. I don't know if Ayn Rand, you know, would uh, you know, would sanction this, or if she would agree with this. Not, but it's a philo- objectivism is a philosophic, a complete philosophic system created by Ayn Rand. You know, which, which upholds uh, objective reality in metaphysics. That is, you know, in in in, in the study of you know of the universe, uh, reason in epistemology. We go you know, in the study of, of knowledge, egoism, rational egoism in, in in ethics, as opposed to any form of, of self sacrifice, individualism, individual rights. And, and less fair capitalism uh, in, in, in politics. Um, I think that's really the the the, the main principles of objectivism. Right, you know, right there. Um, and, and also, I just want to um, talk a little bit about some of her novels here. Um, which one is your favorite, by the way? Atlas Shrugged. Oh, the Salmon Head. Okay. Yeah, I think Atlas um, Shrugged is. Literarily, objectively, Dorian and Ruben, I think Atlas Shrugged is the greatest novel ever written in terms of its plot structure and the, the depth of its theme and the way Ayn Rand integrates the theme into the plot and dramatizes it in the plot. But my, but my personal favorite is is The Fountainhead because it contains my favorite hero, you know, Howard Rock, and I'm a hero worshiper. And, and so uh, a lot of times in my life I, when I'm confronted with a difficult moral decision or painful psychological circumstances, I would ask myself, what how would Walk do in this in, in you know in, in these circumstances? And they're very inspired, you know, by him. So I love the sound. Anytime Howard Walk is on the scene, I just I just I just love that book. It just it excites me. Uh and over her the course of her lifetime, how many novels did she write? Uh, it's funny, is this is this a new Ayn Rand novel that's just been published, Ideal, which I think was a a manuscript that was just, I'm not sure the genesis or the history of it, but I think it was discovered recently in her papers or, or else the estate of Ayn Rand just recently knew about it, but just recently decided to release it. Ayn Rand never released it in her lifetime. Uh, but uh, but um, the, the novels that Ayn Rand herself released were four. There's four. It was We the Living, it's our first book, which was published, I think, in 1936. Uh, which is a, a semi-autobiographical novel. It's about, it's about you know a young a young girl growing up in the in the Soviet Union and you know, who's very independent, wants to be an engineer. You know she thinks for herself. She's an individualist, and of course, she's uh, you know confront, confronts the communist system. Very well plotted, very exciting novel. Great love story, just overshadowed by Ayn Rand's subsequent novels. They came Anthem. I think it was published in England at first. 1937, 1938, a, a, a brilliant little novelette about what, this, this, what happens when the entire world, when there's no free country left anywhere, no individual rights, no capitalist system anywhere in the world, the entire country is fully socialist. Published in the late 1930s in England, don't forget, uh, in the run-up to World War II with, with national socialism dominant in Germany, uh, fascism dominant in Italy, uh, communism dominant in, in the Soviet Union. It looked like the world was about to be swallowed up 
by collectivism and socialism. And, and Rand's novel anthem, I think, is a brilliant, like, kind of a clarion call to the Western world to wake up and and, and see what the social, what full socialism is. Don't forget that that was called the Red Decade when in the United States. I mean, in part it might even be called the Brown Decade because you know, before the war there were supporters of National Socialism, although largely the supporters of collectivism were supporters of the Soviet Union. But I mean, different versions of poison, right? Different versions of collectivist poison. Um, 1943, I mean, published The Fountainhead, you know, a story about Howard Roth, the revolutionary architect, has these new ideas and um, needs to battle against the entrenched beliefs of a conservative society. You know, it really, really is about the, the, the role of, of the innovative and independent thinkers in human, in human life and the way they, the, 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 these, these great uh, independent thinkers who, you know, the Galileos, the Darwins, the, you know, the Copernicuses, people like that, uh, you have new ideas and, and carry us forward into, you know, uh, into 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 great into civilizations and, and into great achievements. Uh, how society is indebted to them, and very often society will burn them at the stake and or kill them for, for, for like Socrates, for uh, you, you know uh, their, their 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 theories that, that go against or you know, contradict the cherished beliefs of of leather entrenched society. And then Iron Man's masterpiece, of course, in 1957, Alice Shrugged providing a moral defense of, of capitalism. You know, the story, the brilliant story, what happens when the men of the mind, you know, the creative thinkers in every field, from architect, you've made as even architects, the zoology or, or anything in between, what happens when the men of the mind, men and women of the mind go on strike, you know, and, 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 and they withdraw from society in support of, of individual rights uh, in defiance against uh, being forced to serve the state, in defiance of, the, you know, the in rejection of the claim that their life belongs to the state. Uh, and uh, the strike of the men of the mind is a brilliant plot device that enables Ayn Rand to show by, by when they withdraw, you know, to Galt's Galt's, to this private society in the mountains of Colorado, when the mind is active and free, the great advances they uh, arrive in. And what happens to the outer society when, when they... Uh, when they retreat from the world and the world is deprived of, of the mind and, and, the, and the world collapses, it enables Ayn Rand to dramatize a theme that the mind is, is mankind's instrument to survival by both showing what happens in its presence and by what happens in its absence. And it's just a tw- literary toward the force and the way Ayn Rand uh, dramatizes um, this very, very profound moral and philosophic theme. It's funny, it's funny, guys, because the, the philosophers in the United States are starting to appreciate Ayn Rand as a philosopher. There's, a, there's an Ayn Rand Society, the American Philosophical Association. They study Ayn Rand's ideas, and it's really good. But the literary, the English departments and the literary critics, they're literally going to be, I mean, I mean literally, this is not hyperbole, they will literally be the last people on earth to realize what a magnificent novelist was. I mean, there's, there's like no serial, very little serious appreciation yet. Of, of what a uh, extraordinary novelist Ayn Rand is, you know, talking as a literary figure, the level of Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, that you know, that kind of writing. The literary people, are literally, the, literally the last people to recognize what a great novelist he was. That that is really sad. That, that is really that is really that's pathetic as a matter of fact. Yeah. Wow. Um, uh, do you want to answer a question, Ruben? Yeah, I was just. Uh... I was thinking with while well, listening to Dr. Bernstein uh, speak, and I was thinking, you know, it's, it's we're, we're, we've been discussing about how we're regressing, moving away from capitalism to a certain degree, and more into socialism. And then I see a country like China, which has traditionally has been communist, communist manifesto, uh, and and that's that's how they um, the world has seen them. For, for so many years, and now they're basically a combination, and correct me if I'm wrong, of social, um, communist slash capitalism. How is that possible, Dr. Bernstein? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. That's an interesting situation <laughs> in China. I mean, I mean, you're right. Until the mid, from, from the late 1940s when Mao, Mao Zedong came to power until the mid-70s when he died, that was a brutal communist totalitarian state. I mean, if you read read off Rudolf Rommel's book, Death by Government, 
you know, Romo, Professor Romo devoted his career to studying what he called democide, the you know, murder of the people. He's not talking about uh, people killed in warfare. He's talking about, you know, you know, innocent, legally disarmed civilians murdered by their own government. Well, the estimate today is that uh, under Mao in, in China, the communists butchered some, some 70 million, 70 million, you know, innocent individuals. And since my daughter is adopted from China, the only thing I can think is uh, if they murdered Penny's family, at least they waited until after uh, they had reproduced because, you know, this adorable little girl, well, not so little anymore since she's 12, but you know, she, this adorable girl mm-hmm. is uh, is here. But, um, uh, yeah, so when Mao died and Deng Xiaoping came to power in, in the late 70s, it really... It's really fascinating because Deng had been, a, like Mao, had been a devout communist. I mean, he was like a devout Marxist, uh, Marxist ideologue. But I, 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 what was Deng's famous line? That he didn't care whether the didn't care whether the cat was white or black, as long as it caught mice. At some point, I guess he, he I guess he had believed that communism was going to outproduce capitalism, that it was going to create abundance, and the masses were going to prosper. And after decades of mass starvation uh, in China and the capitalist West, still relatively wealthy, I guess, dung, <laughs> well, we need, we need some elements of capitalism to achieve prosperity. So he started to, he started right. to in, implement privatization in the agricultural sector. You know, you know, allow it is. There's still no individual rights in China. You know, that's still a brutal dictatorship where they could kill you uh, for any for any reason that that they want, and and they do. Right. The communist regime still does, but they start to allow by uh, as a privilege rather than as a right. Some elements of private property, some elements of privatization, some el- you know, some elements of profit seeking. They establish special enterprise zones, like in Shanghai. For example, for the most part, they've left Hong Kong alone after the British, you know, handover. And so, they, by, by privilege, they allow some elements of privatization uh, and, and, and profit seeking. And so, the, their economy is doing is doing much better than, than it did, right. you know, 40, 40 years ago. But there's still a brutal dictatorship, and the mind is still heavily stifled in China. If China's ever to actualize its potential, they're going to need to overthrow that communist regime and, and establish, you know, individual rights and it's really not part of Chinese culture, you know. It's uh, it's it's no it's no part of the heritage. So it's going to be a long road to hoe. Although, well, the obvi- the obviously, there's a, there's a very strong practical element in Chinese culture that desires prosperity. So who knows? Maybe that maybe the maybe the Chinese people come to realize, uh, especially with American uh, American influence, if America doesn't become socialist, uh, that individual rights is necessary as a right, not as a privilege granted by the government, but as an inalienable right. That, that your life belongs to you, and consequently, you know, you're, you're right now it's a life of liberty, but the property. Uh, then, of course, we can see China, China rise because there's tremendous brain power in that country, and the potential there is enormous. Yeah, well, like I, a, a I, larger I, I, version, I, I, like a larger version of Japan and Hong Kong. That's what China could be. It's like a, it could be oh, a larger it, version of Japan and Hong Kong. I, yeah. I traveled. Yeah. I traveled to. I, I traveled to China. I was there for two weeks when my son. Um, uh, throughout his middle school and high school, he was um, learning Mandarin, and, and you know he still he still knows Mandarin to a certain degree. Uh, so we spent two weeks traveling through China from Beijing all the way to uh, Shanghai. And I, one of the things that I learned is that even if you buy property in China, that property is not yours. That property belongs to the state. Right. You know, it, it's, it's basically. I mean, but the development, the the, the growth of, of uh, real estate. I mean, areas in 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 Southwest China that were, you know, there was nothing there. Now it's basically residential areas that are ghost towns because the price to acquire any of these properties is not uh, accessible by the average. Uh, Chinese, right. you know, they're it, it definitely, you know, they have grown. It's an inflated market. It's an inflated market, uh, and it's really a, a very, very. Um, I mean, if you're going to invest in China, you you really have to know the players, because if you don't, you'll be taken. And absolutely, I would never, I would never risk a penny with that kind of government. You know, with a with a government that that is 
still a, a brutal dictatorship that doesn't recognize individual rights. That you, you don't have any right to, to your own life, never mind to property where they could, where they may permit you property as a privilege temporarily, but they could they always retain the legal power to seize it at, at any time. You could invest, you know, you you could invest millions in that country and have it all nationalized or uh, taken over by by the regime at any moment on any pretext. I think anybody who invests uh, privately uh, in a country that is a brutal dictatorship is is, is very foolhardy, uh, you know, and, and and is looking to lose. Looking to lose their investment, right? You, you need you yeah. need property yeah. rights by law. Property rights by law, not property by privilege, in order to invest safely. And you don't have it, you know, under any remotely communist regime, you know, such as in China. You invest in Japan. You, even Hong Kong is risky because the Chinese could you know, go. The Chinese the communist government could take it over at any time. But invest in Japan, for example, or you know, or South Korea, where there's some element of property rights there. Not not in uh, not in China, well, you know, in Taiwan is another place where there's property rights you know, upheld by law, but not oh, in yeah. any communist not in any, any communist country. Well, Taiwan, Taiwan, yeah. uh, we were we were in Taiwan also, and uh, Taiwan is totally uh, there, there's property rights. You have property rights, and, and, and it's basically a Western way of living. Uh, right. Very very. Right. Um, I mean, I, I, I can live in Taiwan. Yeah, I understand. And the same for Hong Kong, except right. for the specter of the communists who possibly could, who, who, who politically control it after the British handover and who could impose dictatorial policies legally at any moment. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, but doesn't mean they won't. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there, there's definitely, I mean, the Chinese definitely want to make uh, Taiwan their 19th State, provincial state. Yeah, yeah. Taiwan's in danger. Hong Kong's already politically under their control, where they could impose legally, they could impose dictatorial policies at any time. Taiwan is still a free country, and the United States is committed to defending it, you know, by by, by treaty from, from Chinese invasion. So for the for the Chinese to take over Taiwan, they would need to do it by invasion, where they where they already legally legally control Hong Kong. But yeah, I, I mean, Taiwan's in danger too. Uh, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, uh, Doc, we only have about a minute, uh, a minute and a half left. Um, you wrote a book called Capitalist Solutions, correct? Yes, Philosophy that's correct. Philosophy of American Moral Dilemmas. Um, and where can people go to find this book? Well, any of my books, you know, the the Capitalist Solutions or the Capitalist Manifesto. Which is which is my, you know my my most popular book that sold many copies. Or Capitalism Unbound, or Objectivism in One Lesson, you know the philosophy of Ayn Rand. All four of those books. Amazon is a great company, guys. I mean, uh, Amazon is Amazon sells uh, all books. So you just go up on Amazon, you know, type in Andrew Bernstein, all my books will show up. They can also go to my website, which is just andrewbernstein.net. You know, get, yes, uh, it's my website is Andrew Bernstein. Net, which will tell them, tell the listeners about about all my books, and and, and they're all available on Amazon. So I love Amazon, guys. Great company. I mean, not just because uh, it sells yeah. my books. I mean, I get all my books from Amazon. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, Ruben, do you want to ask anything? Or well, I, I I've enjoyed this um this this uh, hour that we've had with Dr. Bernstein. I mean, I, I learned quite a bit about Ayn Rand. Um, I think uh, a lot of the what he has mentioned tonight is basically a, a, we're, 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 we're looking at the transformation of our country from capitalism to socialism. Right. That's, right. Cause that's something that, that most people are not even aware of it. And tonight you have basically um, indicated that that's what's happening. Right. I think of it as the sweet, the Swedenization of America. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Swedenization of America. I don't think, I don't think the Democrats really, it's certainly not the Republicans. I don't think they want to turn the United States into a little mini clone of the Soviet Union, but into a semi-socialist welfare state like Sweden, I think is, is, is the goal. Yes, and um, yeah, folks, we are out of time. 
Um, Dr. Bernstein, thank you for joining us tonight. You're welcome anytime. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Doreen. Thank you. This was fun. This was this was a fun way to spend an hour. <laughs> yes, and and folks, um, next week we're going to be talking about uh, our, our our vets and how we can raise money for those who um, who are hurt and injured. Uh, and we have a group coming on for that. Um, and and these people are exciting because they they make calendars and do this and that. And so that's for next week's show. And please go to the website, studentsforbetterfuture.com, to make a donation. That would be great. And, Ruben, until next yeah. week, we are out. All right. Okay. Have a great week. Thank you.